Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. You know, some pessimists might say that we wasted the 200th episode on Garrett and Batty, and one of those persons would be Garrett, so that's why I'm okay sharing it with you today. But we made it up. We made it up to the fans today because episode 201 has a superstar. So today's guest went to Brock University, where she was the West Player of the Year. She's a first-team OUA All-Star and a second-team All-Canadian. She's played for Team Ontario and Team Canada Beach. She played her first-year pro in Switzerland, and she's joining us from Cyprus today. Please welcome to the show, Laura Kandata. Laura, thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Laura, I think a lot of Ontario people would probably know your career. Obviously, when you're a first-team OUA player, people start to learn your name. But for our listeners all over the world, hopefully, you grew up in that Etobicoke area. So what other sports were you playing growing up? And then what got you hooked on volleyball so early? So I was actually playing soccer and hockey before I started playing volleyball. A man named Dave Pinello, he's really big in the volleyball world. He's one of the heads of Etobicoke Titans, so the Toronto Titans Club. He saw me playing in one of my elementary school tournaments and said that he had a club to come out and try out, and so I did, um, mostly because when, at that age, I kind of followed my sister around a lot, my older sister, so she decided to try out, and I was like, you know what, if my sister's doing it, I'm going to do the same. Um, volleyball was one of my last choices in sports. I definitely liked soccer and hockey better until maybe later in elementary school when I kind of got hooked on a team that had great girls, great coaches, and I fell in love with the sport. Yeah. Do you, do you remember a moment? Like, cause I think volleyball gets really fun when like your skills are good and you can do the athletic stuff, but like the skills around you too, right? Like gym class volleyball is not always fun for people, but you're, you're saying when club got really good. So I guess younger kids now can play like 12 you or maybe even 11 you in certain areas. That would have been 14 you for you or how, how old were you when volleyball kind of got really fun and athletic for you? I think it was around, yeah, 13, 14 in you. That was kind of when the level kind of picked up. Girls started taking it more seriously and it was a lot more fun because rallies were longer. People were hitting the ball a little bit harder. You know what I mean? So it was definitely more entertaining to play. And what high school did you go to? Did you get a a good school season in? Because in Ontario, they overlap quite a bit. So was club really your focus or was your high school really competitive as well? So club was my focus, but I got really lucky with the high school I went to. I went to Bishop Allen Academy um, and our volleyball team was great. So everyone on my volleyball team ended up going to either university in the States or the university in Canada. We had, I'm sure people know Sophie Bukovic. Sarah Legler-Clark, she played at Georgia, and now currently, I think, at McMaster. We had Katie Zutatis, who played at McMaster. We had Sophia Herrera, who played at Guelph. Me, um, who else was there? Tara the Libero in Guelph. Like, there were so many girls. A setter from York. Um, So we had a really competitive high school team, and we did really successful at OFSA. Um, We ended up winning two gold medals and a third-place medal through my years of high school and 
yeah, that was kind of, I just got lucky with that and got to have a solid focus on club while also getting amazing training and experience with older girls for high school. Yeah, that's awesome. And it reminds me I should have done more research before the show because that's a lot of good players on a high school team and some offset medals there. So congratulations on that. It does make me a little curious, though. A lot of those players you mentioned went to different clubs. And I think, did you play Titans your whole career? So how come you weren't tempted to go to Defensa, to go to Side, to go to this club, to go to that club where, like, you're you're in your high school team room and you're talking to people and, and you have a really good high school team. Nobody's ever asked you, hey, Laura, do you want to come to my club practice tonight or my club tryout? Like, why were you so hooked to be a Titan your whole career? So started with Titans and finished with Titans, was definitely loyal all of my years. But um, what happened was we had a great team. And then I think it was midway through high school, our team kind of split up into different teams. And at that point, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue volleyball after high school or not. And... Um, I kind of just stuck with Titans because one, I had a great connection with the coaches. So Dave Pinella, Stella Harrison, and then Sean Powell, he, like they were all three of them were amazing and taught me so much that I was in a position where I said, I would rather be on a lower level team for my last year and be around coaches that will teach me more about life and the mental game and strategy and stuff like that, instead of being on a team where I'm potentially on the bench and not having the experience. So on Titans, I was always playing. And I was like, if this is going to be my last year playing volleyball, like I want to be on the court for sure. Loving my coaches, loving my team and being in a great environment. Yeah. That's, I didn't wanna, you know, that's so cool. Cause I don't really see that a lot, uh, especially with tryouts happening in Ontario right now. It seems like a lot of kids are in a rush to make a super team versus making your team really good and battling against your friends from other clubs and things like that. So that's really cool. So that's super interesting that you were player of the year in the OUA, a second team, all Canadian first team, all-star in the OUA that you didn't think you were going to play in university. So was that something you learned in 18 U when coaches started giving you attention and asking what you were doing next year? Were you contacting coaches? Did Sean Powell pull you aside? Like, yo, you, you have a chance to do this at the post-secondary level. Like, was there a moment that clicked that you're kind of like, yeah, I think I would like to play at university. So what actually happened was I, from all of like the girls that I played with um, on my club team and past Titans, they're all messaging me saying, did you start your recruiting process? Did you start your highlight tape? Did you do this? Did you do that? And I said, not at all. I haven't even been talking to coaches. I don't even think coaches know I exist. And I ended up going to one of the girls on my team at the time, Tara, signed to York University as a setter. She was so excited about it. And I was like, you know what? What's there to lose? And then I called Sean up and I said, hey, I want to try and play university volleyball. And he's like, okay, it's kind of really late. Like the teams are basically set. He's like, but you know what? I'll see what I can do. Maybe I'll send out a few emails kind of thing. So um, he helped me with that. And during our not nationals provincials at Waterloo, coaches were everywhere. I kind of introduced myself to a few of them just to say, hi, I'm Laura Kandata. I'm playing on this court at this time. I don't think you know me and I haven't sent anything out, but if you want to take a look, this is where I'll be. 
Um, and that was kind of the only communication I've had with any coaches. And I think at our last tournament of the entire season of club, I, at that point, I was kind of set in my head that, you know what, I'm not going to be playing volleyball after this. Like, this is not going to be a thing because there were a few teams in the States, like Syracuse and all that, that offered, but I wasn't interested in, or wasn't prepared to go away to the States just because I wasn't mentally ready to make that step, I guess, in life. And I wanted to stay in a Canadian university. Um, so I kind of just accepted the fact that volleyball was kind of over for me, made the most of my last tournament. And then at the end of it, Dale Melnick at the time came up to me and said, hey, we have a potential spot for you at Brock. Are you interested? And I was very stubborn back in the day. And I was like, oh, no, it's okay. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and then my parents were like what are you doing and I was like what do you mean and they're like no 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 like give it a chance I'm like okay so we Dale talked to my parents we booked like a little you know meet and greet at Brock took a tour and ended up getting into a program at Brock and started there that's kind of my story <laughs> I was gonna say because it was a little late in the process like at that time, you didn't even apply to Brock. Like before Dale talked to you, you you weren't in the school. You didn't have admittance or anything. So you were applying late and going to a team late. Yes. Like <laughs> I didn't apply to Brock. So. so for any kids listening right now, this isn't a traditional process that you might want to maybe <laughs> apply to the schools you're at least looking at. <laughs> yes. I didn't apply to Brock, but last term of the season, well, I mean, after that, I had to crazy rush everything to apply so but that was definitely a path that's not normal in volleyball and <laughs> but it worked out before we jump to your university stuff were you playing Timo beach as a club athlete and, and i guess ncaa beach wasn't as experienced as it is today like it, it's it's made a big leap in the last even two three years right so for you you mentioned like maybe going to Syracuse or maybe playing indoor in the NCAA was beach ever an option you were looking at or because there wasn't that many schools offering at that time, you didn't really pursue the, the beach side either. Yeah. So at the time when I was going to university beach was like not even an option. Like it was not even a thought in my head. The fact that indoor wasn't even hardly there, but beach definitely wasn't even a thought because it wasn't big at the time. It was more of a summer sport. For me, and but I did play for Team Ontario during my, I think it was grade 11 and 12 years of high school. And then from there, I went to university and started doing Team Ontario in the summer and university volleyball in the during the year. So because University of Volleyball wasn't really on your radar. Like, there's there's kids who have their highlight tape in 16U. They're going to tournaments. They're watching games. Like, they know the players a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, when you step on campus and you go to your first Brock, you practice, like, is the level that big for you? Or because you're not starstruck and you're like, oh, that's so-and-so. She played provincial team and now she's a starter at Brock. Like, did you even know some of the curls or, or what the level was going to be like? Or were you just so free and easy? You're like, yeah, I love volleyball. This is awesome. I'm playing at university. Yeah, it was um, definitely a shock when I got there. Um, I haven't watched any university volleyball really that much. Um, I wasn't familiar with the level or the kind of step in transitioning to university for volleyball was. And when I got there, 
I was surprisingly a starter at the time. And I kind of just got thrown in there and it was definitely a shock. And I had to work really hard because I was not expecting to be that much of a difference. Um, so that was super tough, but I had, again, like great support system to like help me through it at the time. And to me, Brock is a very interesting case and I'm a big Steve Delaney fan. I don't think that's a big secret. We've had him on the show a couple of times, but like working with you a couple of times, like through beach programs, uh, Darby Taylor was on a provincial team. I got to work with uh, Emily Armstrong. Like there was always super talented athletes there, but it never really felt like it clicked. And then for whatever reason, what, what Steve brought to the table, like did that year just feel different or was it because you guys were so experienced or maybe some, some switches flipped that the, the older athletes wanted to take it more serious? Like, what finally clicked in Brock? Because I think every year everyone's like, oh, like they're, they're going to be good. They're going to be good. But it never really felt like you guys went on a big run. And then Steve gets there and you guys go like on a big run through, I think you make um, second in the OUA, right? In Steve's first year? Yeah. So that that's a big change. Before but We made playoffs in the first year that he was here. And my second year, we ended up getting second in the OUA. Yeah. Right, right. So what... Was it just a, a change of a voice and it was just the right time for everybody? Or, or when you're in the room, what felt different that all of a sudden you guys start going on these runs? So I think it was just honestly the mindset he set for us. Um, he came in, and again, I'm a huge fan of Steve as well. He just kind of came in and set a different mindset for all the girls on the court. And it was pretty cool to see because before Brock was kind of known to be a one of the lower ranked teams in the OUA so not that we had a mindset that it was okay to lose but when we did lose it didn't hurt that much or we didn't feel that affected by it but when Steve came in he kind of drilled in our heads that listen when you lose a game you want to be like so match the point where you don't want to lose again. Like you want to be that team that is so like, if somebody beats you, they have to try really hard to beat you. Like when you are on the court, the other team has to be on their A game to beat you. Like doesn't matter the team that like has is mentally stronger and tries more and puts more effort in will be the team. Like the, will be the team that comes up with the win kind of thing. So I think it was a mindset change. Also, I think, a really, really big thing was there was no separation within the team. And I think he made that really clear that he wants all of us to be treated as equals. There's no like first years, second years, third years, and seniors. You know what I mean? It was kind of just like, you guys are one team. You guys cover each other's back no matter what. Like nothing can break your relationships. There's no hierarchy here. Like you need to all respect each other the exact same way. So I think that change was huge as well, just because all of us had such high respect for each other that in practices, we pushed each other like no tomorrow. Um, like we chirped each other across the net just to get in, into each other's heads and like make each other mentally strong for when in games, if somebody's chirping on the sidelines, like, no, I've heard worse in practice. It's fine. Like my teammate chirps me all the time. You know what I mean? So it's just nice to have like a teammate that in practice, like we're pushing each other so hard and off the court, we're like so proud of each other. So it was just nice. Good atmosphere. 
What was the first practice like when when Coach Delaney introduces the the concept of chirping? Because I think you go to Guelph and they're going to have awesome fans. And when uh, their new gym is fantastic, but I kind of miss the old barn where it felt like the crowd was on top of you a little bit. Uh, if you're going to play U of T in a playoff game, for sure, there's going to be football teams on the baseline. Like it's just, uh, you, you have to prepare for that moment. So I'm curious though, when he designs a practice activity around preparing for that, what was the mood around the team? being like, what, what are we working on today? So I think what he was trying to get at was like, I don't know, whenever there was chirps flying around in the court, Steve was kind of like egging people on to like do it more. And it almost became like a game to see who could chirp each other more or like who can get in each other's heads. Because like at the end of the day, like from the beginning of the season till at the end of the season, our chirping got so intense that like, the second you got into somebody's head, you felt like you like won a championship because it was so hard to like break each other. So <laughs> I think the main focus for Steve was <laughs> we're going to practice tripping each other so hard that when it comes game time, when people are smashing drums at the back, um, yelling your name, like it doesn't phase you because you've gone through like <laughs> it every single day in practice. And was Steve there to kind of control it? Like, did anybody ever go over the line? Because uh, Josh Binstock mentioned when he was at U of T, like that was a big part of their game. But they they basically had a rule or an understanding that after practice, if I'm still mad at you, Laura, because you chirped me so well, that's on me that I need to let that go. It doesn't mean that I'm allowed to be mad at you for like two or three days after. So I think for any coaches listening, yeah, there's an advantage to this and it does make you mentally tougher. But there's also a risk you're taking that you could blow up some relationships. So I'm wondering how you guys walk that line of it as well. So I actually don't think anyone like really crossed the line at practice. It was more volleyball related, I guess, trips, obviously. Um, and at the end of the day, like Steve kind of told us like, this is volleyball. Like when people trip you in volleyball, they're doing it for one sole reason. Like they're, they're doing it for the purpose of making you play worse or trying to get in your head to like mess up your game. So everyone kind of just had an understanding of that from what he was telling us. He's like, whatever you hear, like take with a grain of salt, like give it back to them, like do whatever. But after practice, just know that that was just for the game, not personal. And I think that kind of helped because it kind of spiced things up in practice. We weren't really like used to it at first. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I'm being too mean. Like, I just told her that she can't pass my serve like this and that. <laughs> and then at the end, it was kind of just a normal thing to do. Nice. And it's great to hear about the the team, like eliminating the hierarchy between like the rooks and the vets and trying to get like the, the unit cohesive there. But he's mentioned on our show before, he's also not afraid to pull out the whiteboard and in the gameplay drill, Laura, if you make two errors, your name's getting written on the board and there's going to be two errors or there's going to be four errors. Like he's not afraid to, in a subtle way, call people out in front of the team and kind of show that like, Oh, you, you think you should be the starting right side, but you just made six errors in a, in one drill. Like how was that added to practice? Like I think athletes know, I think they kind of know what's going on in the court and they kind of might have a, an impression of who should be starting, who should be playing more. But when it's broadcasted and it's on a big board in the gym and everybody knows, like how did your game respond to that? And how did the team kind of respond to these activities? Yeah. So that was very different. That, was that's never happened to me before either so he I remember literally the first day he did it um we were trying to do a continuous drill 
and it was basically like pepper over the net continuous with the hoodie and it wasn't going so well so he walks out of the gym and we're all like oh crap this is bad he's mad so he comes back in with this massive whiteboard and he's writing all of our names in like really big and he's like all right continue and we're like okay so then he starts putting tallies on every single time somebody makes a mistake under the name and we're like holy crap like he's marking down our mistakes we can't get away with anything he's gonna know how bad we are now like this is crazy we're all freaking out and then um after that he goes all right these are all like your mistakes this and that we need to pull each other accountable he kind of turned into an accountability thing but um the first few times that he pulled out that whiteboard trust me when I say I was shaking and I was like do not mess up like put the ball over the net do not be the one to mess up um But after that, it kind of helped our consistency or it didn't kind of, it definitely did because whenever the ball was in a wrong position, instead of just swinging blindly, we were just putting the ball back over the net for a continuous play, right? So um, there was definitely players that stepped up to the challenge of making less errors, I guess. And then there was definitely players that the second there was a tally on the board would kind of make even more errors. Um, But that's, I guess, kind of normal in sport. There's some players that can be okay with seeing that they have errors and just blow through them. Whereas others kind of get caught up in the past and can move forward from it. Yeah, like if you if you think there's a ton of value in this and you were going to try to encourage maybe a 15-year or 16-year coach to do this, like I like how you use the word challenge there because I think there there's a kind of the pendulum swinging in coaching where, you know, you're not supposed to embarrass athletes. You're not supposed to make them uncomfortable. You're supposed to empower them. But this drill kind of puts you on the spot, right? But I think if the team has love and belief for you, like you want to work through these situations because they're going to happen in a game and there's no running from it, right? So early on, if you had to like, say, this is a drill that makes your team better. Like what would you encourage teams to do? So uh, again, this doesn't go over the line and kind of breaks an athlete down. So it did come to that where it got to the point where it was like, there's, you knew which people were kind of affected by it. And it honestly made our team a lot stronger because the second somebody got two or three tallies down, it was like, you're turning to your teammate and you're like this one right now, like you're putting it over the net. This one right now you're scoring. Like, you're turning to those teammates and you're saying like this point right now, like drop it and like, let's go kind of thing. Like it wasn't just holding yourself accountable, but it was nice that the second you saw a teammate had a few tallies, there was other girls there to like pick you up and be like, let's go. Like you're not getting to five tallies or this or that. You know what I mean? So it really brought us even closer because at first we were all scared about the tallies. And then after a while it was like, the second somebody started getting a few and you like noticed something happening, there was always somebody there right beside you being like, all right, drop it next point. Like you have this, like, let's get this point. I'll give you a perfect pass and you're getting this ball over. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of built on that. But I think, I honestly think it was very successful the way he, his approach was to it. It wasn't at the end of it, when the tallies were up, it wasn't like he was getting mad at us. He was never like, Laura, you have 10 tallies. This is bad. Like, 
you shouldn't be doing this, whatever, whatever. It was more like, all right, guys, this is what it is. These are just like the facts. Um, we're going to slowly build so that say, Laura, you're at 10 next practice, make it seven next practice, make it five. Like it wasn't something to embarrass or to put somebody on the spot or to like, I guess, break somebody down that like definitely wasn't his intentions and he never made it seem that way. But yeah, so it was kind of like an improvement thing, but it was nice to see because when he first started, I even didn't know I was making as many mistakes as I was. And then when he started talking, I was like, oh crap. Okay. Like I definitely have a lot more work to do than I think I do. Nice. Um, yeah. That's kind of perspective, which was good. For sure. That, that's a great lesson to have. And I'm curious, did any, uh, did anybody bank this information and then use it in the gameplay drill? Like, did a middle ever look across the net and be like, Laura, you're not getting set this match. You made, you made seven tallies today. Nobody's going to set you. Like, did it ever like overlap that way? Definitely. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> like people would go across and be like, wow, already three tallies and we've only gotten five points. Like, geez, let's see how far you're going to go today. <laughs> kind of thing. And I was like, all right, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> And and how did your mood kind of change a little bit? Because to be like the West player of the year, obviously you're getting attention and teams are game planning that like when they're in their team meeting, they're going to know where Kandata is on the court. So did you ever feel challenged that your game had to keep progressing? That like you can't just go a whole OUA season hitting your favorite shot because so many coaches have access to video and there's a scout person usually on their bench. And like there, there's so much information and prep going into an OUA match right now where did you ever feel that like, oh, like they've game plan for me and I need to switch it up here and hopefully I have that in the bag. If not, like I'm I'm in trouble this whole match. Yeah, um, definitely 100%. Um, I was never, like my first three years at Brock, I was not even on the charts at all. Like not to be seen. Like I was a, I didn't exist in the OUA basically when I played my first three years. And then when Steve came, uh, I'm not, quite sure how it happened but it did um I was at the top and then everyone was or I did feel the pressure of people watching me and like you know pinpointing me in games and I was definitely nervous and not ready for it so I spoke to Steve about it all the time and he kind of just reassured me to He's like, do not change anything you're doing because you're in the OUA. My two favorite shots were to one and to four. Like those are my two favorite hits. And he said, do not change a thing because they still have to stop those balls for you to, you know what I mean? Like they have to still stop those. And if they can't stop them, keep doing them until they do. And then. When they do, that's when you change something. But do not, like, pull away from your game just because you think. You know what I mean? So he's like, your hard line and your hard four, like, will always be there. And until they stop them, don't change anything. I'm like, okay. So he kind of encouraged me to stick with my game plan until it for sure 100% does not work. And I stuck with my game plan always, and it worked. <laughs> so I never really had an issue with having to drastically change my game other than maybe pulling out a few shots or a seam ball once in a blue moon. So to, to jump ahead to Steve's second year, you make an OUA final four. Does that event 
come with a certain expectation or a certain amount of distraction because that, that that's a big deal here in Ontario. And obviously you're going to be at a different gym, but fans travel to that one. Uh, some schools are lucky that it's during a reading week and they might bring a fan bus. Like it, it's a pretty special thing. So did the messaging ever change from Steve? Did you guys have a, a players only meeting talking about like, uh, again, like let's acknowledge this distraction. Let's not hide from it. Or did you guys just take it day by day? Like what was the mood going into the final four weekend? Um, so from what I remember, I'm pretty sure we did have a meeting about it and Steve sat us all down and he said, listen guys, uh, we're in the final four and we're all sitting there like silent because we're all shaken. We're like, oh my gosh, Rick, we're, we're here. Like, this is crazy. This has never happened. Like what is going on? And he goes, we're in the final four and this is it. Like we're in the moment that we said we wanted to be in. And we're all just kind of, again, sitting there silent. And we're not a team to be silent. We were always talking, always speaking over each other. And we were all just silent. And he goes, like, I remember him saying, you guys are going to be nervous. Be ready for it. You guys are going to be antsy. Be ready for it. You guys are going to be excited, scared, maybe. He's like, be ready for it. And just acknowledge the fact that you are going to feel that way. But that doesn't mean it affects your game. And he just kind of gave us a talk saying, like, your feelings are your feelings and they're going to be there. Like, don't expect that you're going to go into these games the same way you're going to go into the first game of the season. Do you know what I mean? So he's like, it's, it is what it is. And we just need to make sure that it doesn't transfer over to our scale. He's like, you can feel a certain way and it's fine, but make sure that you're managing it. So acknowledge it and then push it aside or don't not even push it aside is that just acknowledge it and be like okay i'm fine with feeling this way but i'm still gonna perform and yeah and, and remind me who did you play in the semi that year was that a ryerson year or who who'd you cross over with i think we played york no guelph guelph we played guelph Oh, okay. I was thinking it was a East-West crossover, but the East-West happens in the quarters. So yeah, you could have played yes. another West team. Okay. York, Guelph, and then you have team the finals. So taking down Guelph, like like you mentioned, you've never been to the final four. It's awesome. Everybody's like over the moon, but uh, I'm always curious with high performers. How do you reset? Because you have a game the next day. So it's like awesome. We've arrived. We've made it. Like we're in the finals. But then how do you like calm everybody down and get on to like the next mission. You know what I mean? Cause like, I think there was no day in between. It was like play your semi and then you have the finals the next day. Right. So mm-hmm. how do you enjoy that moment and live it up, but then also reset and be ready to go the next day. Cause I think that's fascinating in sport that we have to do this. Yeah. So I actually think our year we celebrated the semis as if it was the finals, which was not the right way to do it. Um, our goal all season was from the get-go, like from day one, we were like, we're going to nationals this year. Like that was our goal for the season is we're going to nationals. And we knew top two, we're going to nationals. And I think that kind of was the reason why we maybe came out with a loss in the finals because after our semis, we all were so happy we're like literally feeling as if we won the championship and we didn't, we had a finals the next day and 
we were hugging our parents, this and that. And then we go back to the change room and Steve's there and he's like, not crazy happy the way we are. And we're like, what's going on? Why is he not happy? Like we're going to nationals. And he's standing there and he's like, okay, girls, I know you guys are happy, but we're not done. Like there's tomorrow. And we're like, oh, right, right. I forgot that we have a game tomorrow. And he's like, we have a game. Remember, like we need to refocus in. Like this was great. This is awesome. We, we made our goal, but now we have to make a new goal. Like our goal tomorrow is to come first in the OUA. I'm like, of course, like, yes, like we need to refocus. But I think we got so caught up in the moment of making it to nationals that when the finals came around, not that it wasn't an intense game and we didn't try our hardest and everything, but I think we kind of got so stuck on the fact that we made our goal that finals wasn't a huge focus for us all year long. Does that make sense? No, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense because I think it is a challenge because, yes, you're going to nationals, yes, but, like, not to be the, the jerk, but the job's not done, right? Like, you still want to win a championship, and I think it's hard to relay that message where people are, are experiencing joy and they're so happy. Like you said, they're hugging their parents that it's hard to be, like, somebody on the team. You're like, get back in the room. We have to prep. Like, you can't really be that guy, right? But you almost yeah. need to be in moments. So it's just super interesting. And then um, your nationals year was an interesting one. I thought – the safety thing, I'm totally on board with. The The thing that added a layer to me was, especially talking to some of the guys, there was a banquet and people from other teams are hugging and you're around people where maybe if pro sports had already done it, like the, the idea of just to bubble it, lock it down, only athletes allowed in the gym, maybe nationals could happen. But you guys arrive, everything's already happening and then that gets canceled, which has got to be heartbreaking. And I thought college did it differently. But then again, I, I was corrected by one of the coaches. They started a day before you guys. And I think that's why they were allowed to get their tournament in is because their tournament already started. They weren't in a major city like the universities where I think the men were in Winnipeg and you guys were in Calgary where they were. I think they were out east where the, the COVID thing hasn't happened. So they, they were able to get their tournament off. But for you guys, when you got the news, how did that go across the tournament where it's kind of like, we have to go home? Like the tournament's canceled, even though you'd already arrived, you've already done all this this prep stuff that now it's like, here's the situation, no negotiation, no nothing. We're, we're going home. We pack up. We got to go. Well, it was crazy because it was kind of like they basically we like already practiced. All the teams already practiced in the gym touched all the balls. So at that point, we're all in the same gym practicing. All the teams were. Then after that, we had our banquet. So we're like, yes, like for sure this has to go on. Like we've all touched the balls. We've all gone to the banquet. We're all like kind of in the same bubble already. Like they're just going to make it happen. So some of us were like, oh no, like it's going to get canceled. And some of us were like, oh no, it's going to happen. So we were definitely hopeful for the tournament to happen, but when it came down to it, Steve called a meeting. Actually, that's not how I found out. <laughs> I'll tell you how I found out. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a message from, uh, you know, Andrew Koss? Yep. And the men's found out that their tournament was canceled before us. Like, maybe an hour before us, probably. And I got a message from him saying, hey, our tournament got canceled. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. So, like, that's not happening. And I'm pretty sure same will probably be going for you guys. 
And I was like, oh my gosh. And I didn't, at that point, I kind of knew. I was like, yeah, like their tournament's canceled. Ours is going to be canceled. Like there's no, they're not going to cancel the men's and not the women's. You know what I mean? And I knew, I think, 45 minutes or so before my team knew. And we were all together in the same room. And I was like, I'm not saying a word. Like, I'm not saying a thing because I don't want to break the news to them. And I don't want to... Like, I'd rather it come from Steve because he probably has a lot, like, kind of speech in the back pocket to go with it, whereas I had nothing. And um, so I kind of just had 45 minutes of, like, thinking, sitting, and not speaking because I was like, the second I open my mouth, like, I'll probably start crying. Do you know what I mean? So Steve calls a meeting. We all go to the this room that he has booked in the hotel, and he tells us. And... It was a sad time. People were not happy. Um, obviously, the seniors, it was our last year to kind of get a chance at nationals, and that wasn't happening now. Um, I actually wasn't going to play nationals, whether it got canceled or not. I destroyed my ankle the day before we left, um, landed on somebody's foot at the net, and it was just gone. So like fractured my ankle, it was kind of destroyed. So I was not going to play either way, but I was still very, very, very sad because even just like watching Brock at nationals was like all I wished for like ever. So that was tough. Cause I was like, even though I'm not playing, like I just wanted to watch Brock compete at nationals and that would have been more than enough for me, you know? So that was tough. It was kind of out of our control and kind of had to swallow it. But yeah. Yeah, that was it, such a tough moment for everybody because everybody feels like they've earned it, right? And to get to that stage and then to not have any control over the outcome when you've already arrived, that's got to be tough for, for a lot of athletes. Um, yeah. I, I don't think the rules were established yet, but because you were a senior, you knew you were done, right? You weren't going to try to bank like the extra year of eligibility that was going to come down the line. But looking back, I think you would have had to do two extra years just to play one more year. So obviously you made the right choice going pro, but um, at that time, did you already have an agent? Were you already looking into pro? Like what, because I'm just curious with your pathway, you didn't even really know what university ball was in your 18 new year. I'm wondering, did you know what pro volleyball was in your senior year? Like when did that process come together that you, you knew you wanted to play professionally somewhere? Uh, so that was <laughs> another late process. Steve kind of, didn't push me, but kind of introduced me to it. And I didn't think pro was going to be in my cards as well. Um, and then he kind of had a meeting with me and he said, Hey, like, what are you doing after university? And I was like, um, starting my life, like probably going to get a job. Um, this and that. And he goes, okay, well, what about pro? And I was like, what about pro? And he's like, aren't you going to try and go? And I was like, well, no, why would I try and go? And he's like, why wouldn't you? And I was like, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not a very tall player. Um, don't they have to be, I don't know, like something crazy, insane volleyball player tall to like go play pro in Europe. And he's like, are you kidding me? He's like, you're not even going to try. And I was like, okay. Okay. He's like, what? He's like, no, you have to think about it. And it's like, okay. And he's like, I'm giving you a week. We're going to meet next week. And you put some thought into it. 
And I hope I come back with an answer. You come back with an answer that I want to hear. And I was like, okay, like I'll think about it. So took the week, thought about it, never thought about it before. This was kind of the beginning of my last year playing. And he's like, Michael Amoroso was the one that introduced him to kind of the agency that I'm with right now. And Steve told me that he would be my agent and help me find teams. So I told him, you know what, again, might as well try. So I got together a highlight tape, kind of all the information that I needed and gave it all to Michael who helped me out with the process. And then kind of just sat on it and waited for contracts to show up. I got a few and at first I was kind of turning them down because I was nervous and scared <laughs> because <laughs> it wasn't, again, in my mind. So I wasn't prepared. <laughs> and then later on in the summer, I was like, you know what? I'm ready. Like, this is what I want to do. I don't know why I'm kind of backing down from this. Like I need to step up again to the challenge. Like if I don't do this, then I'm not challenging myself. So I kind of was like, that's it. Next offer I get, if it's one that I'm happy with, I'm going to take it. And I ended up getting a great offer in Switzerland and took it. Again, took it very late. I ended up <laughs> signing my last con my contract end of August, I think it was, because I kept, I turned down or kind of pushed Finland aside, pushed this team aside, Austria aside. So ended up signing with Finland, I mean, Switzerland at the end of the summer, which is pretty late to be signing. And by doing the show, I'm always fascinated by like the offer where there's, there's, Players who have played for the national team for a while have lots of pro experience and, you know, they can ask for stuff where they want a car and it has to be an automatic. They don't want to drive manual. The team supplies you with a mini fridge. They want a full fridge. They don't want a roommate. They want a flight for mom and dad to come visit. Like they want all this like pull where I'm curious with a first year offer. Again, you're signing in August. Was there anything you could make demands for other than like maybe what country you wanted to live in? Or what were some things that you were weighing? Because I imagine you weren't asking for a car on your first contract, right? No, I was not asking for a car <laughs> on my first contract. I kind of, actually, I didn't really have that much to ask for or expect. Again, I spoke with Steve a lot about like his experience playing pro because he has a lot of it. And he was telling me kind of things that helped him out during his years. So I know that meals was a thing, like having some free meals that were from the team instead of having to buy my own. Um, obviously, obviously like apartment and all like utilities and all that paid for. Um, kind of the expenses that <laughs> I don't want to say our parents take care of when we're living at home, <laughs> but those expenses want, like he said, you want those all to be taken care of. So that was, all taken care of basically for Switzerland. And when I got that opportunity, I was like, all right, this is what I wanted. I wanted my expenses to be paid for over here and in a beautiful country. So I was kind of didn't have much to compare to. So I was very happy with that at the time. And did having Gabby on the squad make it easier, like having another fellow Canadian or were a lot of your teammates English speakers? Like when you arrived um, does coach speak English? How are you dealing with like the level of pro? How are you dealing with like, 
some some people on the show have kind of described it as you're still a varsity athlete, but now you have no school. So it's like your focus is only volleyball and now you're dealing with a ton of free time. Like how was your first few weeks as a pro athlete? Like, how do you feel like you adapted and got used to it? Um, it was very different. I actually found it really hard. Um, with being a student athlete, it was very easy to kind of distract yourself when volleyball wasn't really going your way. Um, whether that was good or bad, like if you're constantly playing volleyball and you're getting really tired or mentally drained from it, you always have your school friends and maybe homework to like catch up on or something else to distract you with. Or if you're not doing well in volleyball, like, you know, oh, no problem. I'm just going to go really hard in school this week and kind of boost myself up with my academics or whatever. But playing pro, it was kind of like volleyball is always on your mind, all that you're doing, morning, afternoon, and nighttime, that's all you're doing is playing volleyball. And it was a lot, I think, my first year. And having Gabby there was amazing. So I actually didn't even know that we signed to the same team when I got there. So that was kind of just a fluke. We and I ended up posting it on my Instagram story, and she's like, Where, what team is this? And I'm like, uh, Bali Toggenberg, like, in... Batsville in Switzerland she's like oh my gosh I signed to the same team and I was like what <laughs> so that was just a coincidence um but she was a lot of help because she ended up it was her second year playing pro so she came from Poland which was great because she already had a year experience so when I got there she kind of helped me with teaching me how it is what to expect this and that and that was really nice also having somebody back home kind of gave me a sense of family in Switzerland because me and Gabby played volleyball since we were 14, 15. We were beach volleyball partners when we were younger. So it was kind of like having a childhood friend there with me in my first year away from home. So that was awesome, but definitely different and a lot harder mentally to deal with volleyball. And I think it kind of took a toll on volleyball sometimes, but it was really nice to have, a supportive teammate and roommates that were always there to like help me through it. Yeah. Like what are some strategies you figured out worked well for you, whether it's, you know, journaling, like I thought it was interesting when we had Sarah Pavin on the show, she's like, when you're overseas, you want to call home and you want to stay connected, but you got to realize that people have their own lives. The time zone's different that like you want to talk to them, but sometimes they have stuff going on. So you can't just say like, decide you want to call home because of the time zone difference might be six or seven hours and they've got stuff to do. Right. So it's not as simple as like, Oh, I need this. So I'm going to do this. It's like, you got to got plan in advance. You got to make stuff happen. Like you're going to be alone with your thoughts sometimes. Like, so, so what were some things that you were able to do that maybe you can now apply to your second year just to feel more comfortable and not just like zeroed in on volleyball the whole time? Yeah. So family's obviously like something that I actually have to schedule in to my days so like I'll tell them hey Wednesday night after practice it'll probably be around 4 p.m your time but 11 p.m my time I'm gonna call you guys for half an hour or an hour um or right before practice I have 20 minutes I know it's gonna be 7 a.m your time but it's gonna be mid-afternoon for me so if you have 10 minutes to call let me know so that's how I kind of tailor around calling my family which is definitely hard but it works out. Um, 
for me, I never was very like really into journaling or any of that stuff, but in Switzerland, I definitely got into it and it helped me a lot. I kind of just got to explode on the paper, which was nice instead of always exploding on like people, like kind of telling everyone else about like all of my thoughts and everything it was kind of just like writing down a piece of paper, got it out of my mind. And I got to like move on from it kind of thing. So if I was stressed about volleyball, writing it down was like more than enough for me to be like, all right, I got it out. And that's that. Um, but also trying to find like new hobbies to do. Um, I got really into yoga and running. I was, I'm horrible at cardio and anybody that knows me knows that I cannot run down the street if I wanted to. But um, in Switzerland, I ended up getting up, like running 10Ks during the week. And it was just because every single time that I needed some something like other than volleyball to get out my energy or like my thoughts or like anything, I would just put on a pair of running shoes and go for a run. And I wouldn't kind of look at the time or anything. I would just run until like, I felt good. And then I'd come back and look at my like Apple watch and it'd be like, okay, 10.3 K. And I was like, cool. Okay. <laughs> I've never done that before because usually I can't run down the street. So <laughs> running and yoga and journaling were my go-to basically for when I was away. Nice. And as you're getting settled in Cyprus for this season, what were, what was the process to get that contract? Like, how did you decide on Cyprus? What other offers were you kind of managing? Like uh, some athletes feel empowered that they get these one year deals at a time and you can kind of just jump around and go to different places where I think in pro sports in North America, it's like, you know, you want to sign the seven or eight year deal and be settled and know where you're going to live. Where I think volleyball players like the idea of if I don't like it here, I'm just going to go somewhere else next year. Right. So you're betting on yourself a little bit, but it does create some opportunities. So how did you, how did you land with the Cyprus club? So I got a few offers during the year and this was actually the summer that I was contemplating whether I wanted to go full-time beach or not. Um, so I kept pushing off offers. So I had a few in Austria. I had a few, I got one in, where was it? A few in Europe, like I think two or three, and I just kept pushing them off and it got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to make a decision again or else this is going to be another Switzerland situation. And I kept on pushing. I was like, do I play full-time beach or do I play indoor? Like, what do I do? And it came down to the decision that, all right, I'm going to do one more year of pro and see where it takes me. And literally two weeks after or a week after I made the decision that I'm going to play indoor, I got this contract from Cyprus and it was a great deal again and I kind of jumped at the opportunity so I think both times I just got lucky with two great contracts that just kind of fell into my lap at the right time nice and how have you found managing beach and indoor because I think in Canada Sarah did it but I'm trying to think that not a lot of people can do it at a national team level on a pro indoor level where in the U.S. I think a lot of their pros will play like AVP. They won't make a full commitment to the FIB till they're, they're, they're done with their pro careers where maybe some Europeans do it, but they're closer to home. They can maybe manage it. Maybe they have expectations with the, with their club that they're also going to go on the world tour where, like I said, in Canada, this doesn't happen very often. So 
how are you managing that you don't really have an off season that you, when you came home from Switzerland, you probably took a couple of weeks and then you're on the beach training and you're, and you're ramping up for your beach season. And then you're even contemplating, do I pick one over the other? Right. So how have you found that you can play both at such a high level without risking injury, burning yourself out or, or just feeling pressured to pick one over the other? Yeah. So I actually don't think I've ever had an off season. So I kind of <laughs> don't really know what it's like to have an off season. Um, I started playing like even when I was on to Ontario, I started playing to Ontario, I think in my second year of high school, but in my first and my second year of high school, I was still playing beach like all the time. So I never actually had an off season ever in my entire life. And then when it came to making the national team, I kind of just committed to one day at a time, if that makes sense. Instead of being like, oh my gosh, I have a whole nother season ahead of me. How's my body going to keep up? I would kind of just be like, all right, I have two hours here. I have this much break in between. And then I have a workout here and the rest of the night I can recover. And it was kind of just like a day by day thing with injuries and stuff. Anytime that I did feel like my body was kind of telling me no, I would change something in practice. So if my shoulder was acting up, I wouldn't be going to practice like swinging hard. It was kind of just more like, all right, this practice, I'm going to work on my deep line, like jumbo and cutty. So it was kind of just working around my body and like what it was telling me. So a lot of times I was a lot of recovery. So, you know, sitting around doing nothing when I can and a lot of strength and conditioning. Like I think the biggest part was that I would stretch, roll out, and my strength and conditioning was always happening. Like I would never kind of take that out of my week. Even if I was really, really tired, I would always make sure that I was getting that in because those are the things that are going to keep my body strong and not break when I don't have an off season. So I think just knowing that and taking care of the little details, again, like same nutrition, um, was what really helped me to stay on top of things. Awesome. Awesome. Feels like there's so much more we could dive into, but I know we're managing the time zone difference right now. You, you've yeah. got your day ahead of you in a, in a big practice tonight. I'm, I'm sure preseason's pretty heavy and you're getting used to the coach and the players. So uh, we'll, we'll call it there. But one thing we've made a tradition on the show is just to share a funny or unique story. So uh, you've told some great stories already. I was hoping you could give us one more just to give us a laugh before we uh, call it a day. Okay. Well, I actually have one that happened this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, happens all the, every single week. I have a new funny story, but I'll share this one. Um, we had an off weekend because it's still preseason, so we didn't have any practice or games this weekend. Um, we went to a village that was 45 minutes away. It was beautiful. And in Cyprus, I have not pumped my own gas yet for my car that they gave me. Um, so usually when I go to the gas stations, I kind of just pull up. And I know the gas person that does it all. And I go, Luca, 95, please. And he comes and he does it all for me. <laughs> and so I've never actually like had to do it myself. And on Sundays, people don't work in gas stations here. So they, there was nobody there. And I pulled up to a gas meter or whatever, the tank. And 
there was a guy putting gas in his car. So I turned to him and I go, hi, I'm not from here. Can you help me put gas in my car? Because it's all in Greek. So I can't read what I'm doing on the machine. So I gave him my money and I said, can you put, I'm in whatever, I'm right here, put 20 euros in for me. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And he doesn't speak English. So I'm like, I really hope this guy's going to do what he's supposed to do. Um, punches in a few like numbers and then kind of shoes me off. So I'm like, okay. So I go and I put gas in my car and I'm like, all right, sick. Let's go on. Cause we still had the whole day ahead of us. So it was me and my roommate. I get back into the car after I put my gas in, turn on the car and all the car lights turn on. And I'm like, Oh no. And I'm like, maybe I didn't shut the gas turn thing. <laughs> and I get out of the car, check it, get back in, trying to start my car, car's not turning on and not moving. And I'm like, oh no. I go and check and it says diesel. <laughs> and I'm like, Laura, what did you do? And I'm like in a different village, 45 minutes away from my place. I don't know the language. It's a Sunday, so nobody's working. This village is now like empty because it's like dinner time. So nobody's around and we're stranded at this Petrolina gas station. And I'm standing there like, how are you so irresponsible? Like, come on. And what happened was it got to the point where we had to call the president of our club to come pick us up (laughs) in a different village 45 minutes away to bring us back home on a Sunday night when he was at a dinner party. (laughs) So... We had a long car ride with the president and our car is now still currently at the mechanics. So we've been three days without a car. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a big car guy, but I I think you have to get the diesel out. Like they have to siphon the diesel out to get your car to work again, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see how that goes when we get our car back. (laughs) Oh, you better play well the first game where the president's going to be like, what are we doing with these foreigners? Like... (laughs) Yes, 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 definitely. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Doing that again. <laughs> that, that's great. I could see lots of people doing that. Like like you said, you don't speak the language. You're trusting somebody. You're just pushing buttons. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. I, I think that's that's up there for me as far as good stories we've heard on the show. So thank you for sharing that. Best of luck with this season. I, I'm super biased, but hopefully we'll see you on the beach again soon. But good luck with indoor I think it's really exciting to be in Cyprus. It's a beautiful country and obviously you're continuing your career and sounds like you're ready to go all in on this indoor stuff. But like I said, hopefully we'll see you back on the beach, but best of luck this season and thanks for joining us today. Thank you.